the ninth edition of the Flushing's Finest podcast starts right now. Little roller up along first, behind the back, it gets through Buckner, here comes Knight and the Mets win it! Lopez wants it away. And it's hit deep to left center, Andrew Jones on the run, this one has a chance, home run by Piazza, and the Mets lead 3-2! to two. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Flushing's Finest Podcast. I am your host, Josh Marlowe. And back from his stint on the IL, we have Willie P. He hosted one episode, took seven or eight off, but he is back today to talk about a lot of different Mets topics as they come off a second straight series win as they took two of three from the Padres at City Field this week. Willie. I'm glad to have you back. I'm glad you are all back, healed from injury, and ready to talk about uh, some New York Mets baseball, my friend. You know, I was just taking after uh, Justin Verlander, you know, with uh, some sort of obscure ailment that no one's ever heard of uh, because of old age. So, uh, no, I uh, it's great to be back, and uh, it's great to be talking about a serious win because I think we all kind of looked at this Padres series after the way the Mets played against Milwaukee with a lot of fear. But I think coming into the week after uh, not only a nice series win over the Marlins and getting two out of three over the Padres, I feel like uh, you feel a lot different about this homestand now uh, going out west to uh, to take on an Oakland team where I think you feel like you can get some games against. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about you. Like coming coming into this series for it to be the middle of April, I was pretty crunk. Coming oh, off yeah. of you know what you know what happened last year with the Padres, like you know, and, and look when 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 they went on to beat the Dodgers, I think it did kind of lessen the blow of losing to them a little bit because they then no. upset. Okay, no. maybe it did it. No. I'm still pissed off. <laughs> yeah, so you know, I, I mean, I, I was pretty animated all three games. I wanted, you know, I I I wanted to win the series. Of course, I wanted to sweep them, but you know, I will take two or three. Sure. But since you are back. Uh, one of the things that one of your duties here on the pod, because you are the oldest contributor to the Flushing's Finest podcast, is to tell the the history of Mets baseball. And you've got two on this day in Mets history uh, anecdotes for us today. So uh, go ahead and tell us what you got for us today, Willie P. Well, the first the first one I will give is not necessarily on this day. We're recording this on April the 12th. April 11th is the date of the Mets' first ever contest uh, in St. Louis at Sportsman's Park. Uh, it was when the series uh, began there and the franchise officially was born. It was a loss to St. Louis. They didn't win uh, their first game until about nine days later. So unfortunately for the Mets, uh, they had to wait a little bit of a time uh, in order to get their first victory. But on April the 12th specifically, there was one game that took place in 2014, which I, I remember watching this game in my apartment in Columbia. And the great thing about uh, watching games in the Midwest is that it wasn't, you know, a 
10 o'clock start. It was a 9 o'clock start for the games out west, but this one went particularly late. They beat the Angels 7-6, and they did it with the bottom of their order. It was Lucas Duda, Juan Lagares, Anthony Recker, and Omar Quintanilla. If you go back that far, you remember Omar Quintanilla, kind of light-hitting middle infielder. That quartet went 9-for-22 with seven ribbies. Uh, Anthony Recker actually put the Mets ahead in the 14th with his first homer of the year at that game. He was the backup catcher for the Mets at that time, and the Mets come back and beat the Angels 7-6 in extras in Los Angeles. And then in his second start of the year in 1988, Ron Darling, a complete game, five-hit shutout against Montreal on April the 12th, 1988, the year, uh, two years after the championship, met scoring three runs in a second, courtesy of a Daryl Strawberry home run and a Howard Johnson two-run single, one of the great early season victories that put the Mets on the way to another NL East championship uh, on this date in 1988. Man, the, 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 those are two great memories. I bet you, girl, you know, 1988, two-year-old Willie P., I bet you he was mm-hmm. having a lot of fun uh, yelling at, at the TV also. You know, you, you went back to yesterday. One, one, yesterday. one-year-old Willie P. at that one time. One year. Okay. Well, oh, yeah, because you were born in, you're born in 86. Yeah, 87. But, yeah. 87. Hey, oh, the, oh, that is right. I thought you were born no. the year that they won the World Series. But no, maybe was, you were just conceived I, while they I had was only, while it, only just conceived. Only just Oh, conceived. okay. And then also yesterday was Mr. Met's birthday, the best uh the best mascot that does exist. Well, you, you know, in Major you know League why Baseball. They, you know why they say it's his birthday because that's when the franchise had its first game. That's the whole Mr. Met birthday scenario. Yeah, that would make that would make a lot of sense. That's 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 the whole point of of why I I did that. Oh, okay. Let's focus in right now on on this Padre series. And I I want to go back to Monday because Max Scherzer did throw over five innings of of one hit ball, but needless to say, it it wasn't it wasn't pretty. He had I think it was nine, uh, three two counts. You know, you got to credit uh, San Diego for making for making him work, but he entered the matchup on Monday with a six point three five ERA. That did come down on Monday after his efforts on the mound. After seeing the slow start, where you know he gave the three runs on on opening day to Miami, that uh, that saw him squander a three run lead. Then he gave up three home runs in his second start of the year in Milwaukee as the Mets were throwing home run derby contests the first two games against the Brewers. Did what you see from Mad Max on Monday maybe ease your concerns after he had a slow start to the 2023 season? Well, it eased my concerns about his effectiveness, but the thing that concerns me globally about this Mets rotation, Josh, is that they're not getting deep enough into games, and maybe that's a little bit too presumptuous to to go into, you know, in April. I know that this spring training was particularly different for a lot of pitchers. I think the World Baseball Classic made it different for a lot of people, and maybe the ramp up to this season was a little bit different. But we're not talking about guys who performed in the World Baseball Classic in Scherzer, Peterson. McGill, all three of those guys had relatively normal off seasons and lead ups to the start of this season, and yet uh, none of those guys recorded more than seventeen outs. Uh, the fact that you had Scherzer done after five, you had McGill in the Wednesday contest done after five. Peterson went five and two thirds yesterday. The only uh, real blemish coming in uh, with the two runs he uh, let up in the fifth inning yesterday. But from that standpoint, I'm looking at this from the Mets standpoint and saying, how sustainable is this when it comes to your bullpen having to basically get yourself 
nine to 10 outs in a game. That's, that's very, very difficult to do. I, I need guys to get themselves, you know, into the seventh inning and, and, and maybe make this bullpen not have to work as hard because I think I was with you when, when looking at this today, after McGill goes five innings, you're thinking, okay, where are the other 12 outs going to come from? And that's the part of the game where I feel like the Mets, while it's great to have Robertson and Adovino at the other end, their bullpen outside of those two guys is largely unproven, untested, and unheralded. And even, you know, a guy like Drew Smith, who walked a couple of batters and got around those two walks and had his fourth hold of the young season, I think Brooks Raley has done well also, and uh, we saw him pitch today as well. But I think that's the part of the game where I look at from Scherzer, and they're thinking, man, we need to see him get deeper into games and, and be more economical with it. And he knows how to do that. I think the thing about Max, too, uh, Josh, is that he's always been kind of a bit of a slow starter, and that was always kind of the way even when he was in college is that, you know, I, I remember seeing him, you know, some early season games at Mizzou, and, you know, he, he wouldn't necessarily look like himself until the start of the Big 12 season, and I think the same can be said of his time in the big leagues. I remember the Mets have had a couple of times in April where they went down to Washington and they were able to get a game against Max, and then you know later in the season you'd see that same pitcher throw a perfect game against them, or no hitter, rather. So uh, f- from that standpoint, Max is always going to try to do whatever he possibly can to make sure that he is in his top form come August, September, and October. I, I don't think it's too alarming to think about the way that the season has started, but uh, I like that he got himself a bounce back victory on Monday against the Padres. And again, my only concern is, you know, when you are that guy at the top of the rotation, and I know that, you know, we'll talk about Verlander and, and hopefully you get him back here pretty soon, uh, maybe close to the end of the month, if not when they come back off the, the California road trip. I think that's going to need to be the biggest thing that the Mets need is that they need Scherzer and Verlander to go deep into games, which I know is a lot to ask for two guys on the wrong side of 30 and one on the other side of 40. But that's what you need those guys to do. You need those guys to eat up innings because those are the days where you're going to need to have your bullpen very much conserved because you can't be going 12 outs into their bullpen every single contest, especially when you're not getting the kind of starts you want out of Carrasco, when Peterson is having to put Put more innings in. And even a guy like McGill, who I think coming off of injury and, and a season last year was very much lost for him after missing a lot of it due to injury, I think you wonder what the top end ability from him is also. You know, I, I was thinking about this with, with, with Scherzer. We're talking about a guy that's going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. He, he is one of the best pitchers of his generation, alongside with a guy that is going to join him in this in this pitching staff you know, later this month in Justin Verlander. But you're talking about a guy that, you know, outside of when he was with the Dodgers, you know, he, he he pitched in small markets with Detroit and then Washington where he did help that organization win a World Series uh, championship. Arizona but with, too. Yeah, and, and Arizona. When you talk about pitching, you know, in New York, even though he is a Met, there's a lot of pressure. There is a lot of expectations. Do you think he feels that? Uh, being having to be the, the the number one guy in the rotation where you know you lost Jacob Degrom from last year you know he's moved he's moved on he's now in Texas and then the Mets signed Verlander everyone thought you know even if, even if he didn't pitch opening day he was going to be the number one starter in the rotation now he's missed the first couple of weeks do you think he's feeling some maybe extra extra pressure to carry a starting rotation that has a lot of question marks with McGill coming off an of injury Carrasco off to a slow start. Kodai Singa, who's been phenomenal, but entered the year as an unknown. Do you think he maybe feels the pressure to be maybe more on top of his game in April than, than normal? 
I think he does, but I also think he relishes that. And, and I think Max yeah. has always been somebody who is really kind of stepped up to the plate. He he wants the ball, you know, in those situations. And I I, I don't worry about that part of it. You know, I, I think I think he chose to pitch in New York because of that reason. And and, and I think uh, it took somebody with a lot of mental fortitude to be able to leave Washington for another job inside the division. I don't think a lot of guys. Uh, would have the mental fortitude to try and do that. And I think that tells you enough that, that Max relishes the pressure of being in a city like New York and, and being in a place that that people care a great deal and deeply. And and, and it is a, a franchise that's starved for wanting, you know, supremacy in a very, very tough division. So I, I don't I don't worry about that part of it. My whole issue, again, and, and this might sound like I'm, I'm making the same point I made last time, is is he needs support, and I mm-hmm. and that that's not just from the rotation standpoint. You need an offense not hitting to eleven. You need an offense that is going to put runs up on the board. How many times did we talk about this with Degrom and the Mets? And that you know you you the 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 equal worry from Degrom was threefold. Number one, you would get a day where he just wasn't on his game. Number two. You'd get a day where he was incredibly on his game and you wouldn't get enough run support. And then the third fold worry was always, you know, he looks like from his from his windup or his, you know, torque on his delivery or mechanics or whatever, it always just seemed like the next injury was looming around the corner. And so I worry that we might start to find ourselves in a familiar pattern when it comes to these two older players. And I think once once Verlander's injury thing came about, people who are Met fans, and I was very much like it, I said, you know, here we go again. Here's another guy who comes in here. Great, great pitcher, but, you know, he's not great unless we can get him on the, on the mound. So I think from that standpoint, that's kind of always going to be an underlying thing when it comes to both Scherzer and Verlander. Although, again, both those guys... Uh, Scherzer may be a little less so because he does have some injury concerns in his past, but I think for the most part, these are two guys who, for the majority of their careers, have been guys who take the ball every fifth day without question. And so I think the only thing is you got to make sure that once they get themselves on the mound, they stay there. And like you said, they get the kind of support that they need to, not just offensively, but from the bullpen as well. You know, you, you mentioned the batting average. Maybe it's up to 211 after today. I don't know. I know they entered today as a team batting 200. And, you know, runners in scoring position was the biggest reason why they lost the game on Tuesday night. I think after the opening inning where they left the bases loaded, I think that really set the tone for how that night was going to go. Um, and then, you know, in the bottom of the night, they had a chance to to come back and either tie the game or win the game. They got two runners on and they weren't able to get either one across and they end up falling four to two. When you look at the Mets offense and you were a guy that said all winter long, look, they needed they needed another bat. <laughs> and, 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 and and it wasn't that I disagreed with that. I, I think I was just maybe a little bit more confident than you were that. Maybe they were going to either find that other bat, or they would make the right decision in having a Brett Beatty or Mark Vientos, you know, on you know on on the big league roster to start the year. When you look at the Mets offense to to start the season, and you know today you've got you got home runs from Pete Alonso, who, who's leading Major League Baseball in home runs. You got a home run from Francis from from Francisco Lindor, but it feels a lot like it was last year, where it was a lot of just soft contact that ultimately doesn't win games in October. When you look at the Mets' offense right now, 
what what is it that is the most concerning? You know, of course, the batting average is pretty low. They they entered today 29th in Major League Baseball. Do you think it's just something where they don't have the right guys, they don't have the right order, whatever it is that's hindering this team from putting up runs where I think we we should expect this team to score maybe six, seven, eight runs a game on a consistent basis? Well, uh, the the average right now, I just checked it on MLB.com. It's up to 214. 214 mm. is the average after today. So that, so they raised their batting average uh, a walloping 14 points uh, day over day from uh, from what it was a day ago uh, to what it was uh, in a game where they had eight hits against the San Diego Padres in a 5-2 win earlier today. Yeah, my problem with it uh, is that I can't trust anybody beyond the fifth spot in the order. And and that's, yeah. you know, if it's if, if you're putting McNeil behind Alonzo or Canna behind Alonzo, whatever, uh, I'd more trust McNeil than Canna if we're, if, if we're being frank there. But again, I can trust Nimmo. I can trust Starling Marte, Lindor, Alonzo, McNeil. But six through nine in the order, I have no idea what the heck is happening. I think Tommy Pham had two hits today, so he's looked better. But can you count on him on a consistent basis as the, as your DH? I think Mark Canna right now is having a hard time hitting his way out of a paper bag. Eduardo Escobar is on planet I don't know where. Uh, he went 0 for 3 today. He did score a run because he got himself on base with a fielder's choice. So at least from that perspective, he at least made some sort of thing happen. But you're getting no offense out of the catching position, and I feel terrible because Francisco Alvarez, I just think you need to play him and have him – get to that level and we've talked about this with Francisco Alvarez too a lot of times is that whatever level he goes up to it takes him a little bit of time to adjust to the pitching I just feel like you got to put him in you got to lead him there have him get his at bats make him be a receiver of the ba- of the baseball and just have him take his lumps because he's not going to be I don't think he's going to be benefiting from this every other day baloney with Thomas Nito. Thomas Nito is not your future at the position. Omar Narvaez is not your uh, future at the position. The future of the position is Francisco Alvarez. And if he's basically splitting 50-50 duty with Thomas Nito, that doesn't help him at all. And I understand that you know they want to try and get some kind of offense out of Thomas Nito. You're basically having to shoehorn that out of him because he's hitting 125 himself. So let's let's try to call a spade a spade and realize, okay, Nito's got to be the backup and you probably got to be giving uh, Francisco Alvarez 75% of the bats. Uh, it's hard. The, the Beatty-Escobar thing is difficult because it's not like Beatty had a had an amazing spring. And that's the part of it that I think made things very difficult for the Mets is that they were basing whether or not Beatty started the season at AAA or in the big leagues based on whether or not he was able to hit at the big league level. And unfortunately, he didn't have a good spring. And the problem is, I think, is that all three of those guys you mentioned, you know, Beatty and Vientos uh, and also Ronnie Mauricio too, you can put all three of those guys in that, in that, that category, uh, is that they are probably too good for the AAA level and not good enough yet to hit on a consistent basis at the big league level. They're they're quad A players right now. Now that's not their full uh, that's not their full profile at the big league level. But from uh, from the at least the Beatty and Vientos part is that you need to show me that Vientos can out hit a guy like Mark Canna in left field, and you have to show me that Beatty can out hit. Eduardo Escobar. Now those are two very low bars right now, but it could look worse. I mean, it could be it could look like the way Francisco Alvarez looked last night in the ninth inning against Josh Hader, where you're completely overmatched in at bat and you're not even uh basically you're losing from the word go there. So that's part of the reason why I feel like there is this reticence 
from the Mets to call those guys up and expose them to the Wolves. My issue with Ronnie Mauricio is that I think Ronnie Mauricio probably has the highest upside of any of those dudes, and he doesn't have a position yet to play at the big league level. Like, do you put him at DH? Do you try to have him learn first and, and have a, a timeshare there between him and Alonzo? Uh, do you probably try to shoehorn him in the third base? But then again, what do you do with Beatty? So that's my biggest worry about Ronnie Mauricio is I almost feel like Ronnie Mauricio is trade bait for the trade deadline pitcher that we get, whether it's a reliever or a uh, starting pitcher. Maybe it's a bat. I don't know, but I just I, I've always felt ever since the Mets made the Lindor deal and knowing about Ronnie Mauricio, I saw him play uh, with the Columbia Fireflies on one of the first dates I went on with my wife, and I was like, oh my God, this guy has got it. He's got everything when, him, when the Fireflies were a Met affiliate. I just I've always felt since they signed Lindor to that long term deal that that meant that Ryan Mauricio is going to have his prime days in the big leagues in a uniform that was not the New York Mets, which is sad because I think guys of that nature who you home grow like that should be able to have some sort of staying power because he's a natural shortstop. I, maybe you throw him at second base and maybe put McNeil in the outfield again. That that could be another option, but at the same point in time. Prime Mauricio is going to be a star. I just hope it's it's not for somebody else. And and I hope that each of those three guys, between Vientos, Beatty, and Mauricio, get their opportunity to shine at the big league level because it, it can't be much worse. I know I said I know I said earlier it could be worse, but uh watching Eduardo Escobar right now is painful for me. <laughs> no, you're definitely right. I want to go back to Francisco Alvarez. Because you mentioned, you know, last night in the bottom of the ninth, he was he was overmatched. And, and like I, I was kind of sitting there with an empty st- uh, feeling in my stomach thinking he's not going to be able to to get the job done, get those two runners across, you know, to tie the game, let alone hit a three-run homer to, to, to walk off the game and win the game. Did you agree with Buck leaving him in the game, or, or would you rather have seen him put Vogelbach in that situation to go up there and, and try to get something off of Hayter? Well, the problem is Vogelbach doesn't hit lefties. Uh, I mean, that's the other part of it, and I think that almost is an indictment on, on what – they feel about Vogelback. I mean, the Vogelback didn't start today against Blake Snell because of his inability to hit left-handed pitching. And I think they just they they see him as somebody who is only going to do well against right-handed pitching. And the problem is he hasn't really done well against any pitching this season. That's an he's another part of that 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 really kind of conundrum that the that the Mets feel in right now. He's hitting 250. He went one for three on Monday night against the Padres, but and along with a walk problem also with with him too is that he strikes out a ton and that's i think the part of it that i feel like is is somewhat discouraging when you have a dh like that that i feel like with Vogelback, they got him to be a power guy and uh i think the power numbers for him were all right and okay last year but doesn't have a homer in 16 at bats at this point of the season. And last year, uh, he was somebody who I think the Mets, when they picked him up, they wanted him to hit home runs. When he got over to the Mets, he hit just six in 55 games, uh, six homers, 25 RBIs in 149 at bats. That's not somebody who you feel like is going to be a DH. And and I understand. I mean, when you see Juan Soto hit a 463-foot home run, my my whole thing for the Mets, and again, Alonzo probably is this guy for them now, but like 
I need more guys who look like that and hit the ball like that because I've sat my entire life as a Met fan listening to people say, well, it's a, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's an organization that's built on pitching and that's why Shea Stadium was a pitcher's ballpark and why when they built City Field, they built a 420-foot power alley because they wanted it to be a pitcher's park, et cetera, and so on. And yet I see guys like Juan Soto spit on the ballpark and say, to heck with that. I'm hitting it over the Shea Bridge. So 453 feet today. <laughs> that's that's what I'm saying. It's like like why in the world? How hard is it? And again, I know I'm saying this about another worldly player who's probably in the top ten in all MLB. But like, how hard is it to find a dude like that and make him the DH and just leave him there if you're the Mets? But apparently, we we just all we do is was groom pitchers and and groom people who. Uh, who go and, and play elsewhere because Jacob deGrom can't take the pressure of being in New York and he just wants to go down in Texas and live in relative obscurity. Sorry, was I going on a tangent there too much? <laughs> I mean, the, the thing about the DH is I think, I mean, I'm with you. Um, I think it'd be know, a lot easier. Those, usually those are guys without positions. I understand that. So you're not yeah. necessarily going to get that on your DH. I get. Well, I, I totally get that. Yeah, I mean, look, and I think, you know, in a perfect world, that would be Pete Alonzo, but the guy yeah. wants to play first base. And he and, said he hates playing DH. He says, he says, I hate doing the half day off thing. I need to play the field, which I totally yeah. understand again. Yeah, you it's know, like and, it's and, a hot. It's not like it's a high uh, tension position that he's playing. I mean, he's playing a position that normally gets a lot of power anyway. So that's why I'm I'm somewhat okay with it. But at the same time, it's like, I, I, how do we get another one of those guys? That's yeah, I, you know the, the the thing that really the thing that really sucks, and this is going to get brought up by me and every Met fan, you know, and then even the people that cover the, the 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 team for a living. When you look at the bottom of the Mets order, where like you said, once you get through. The top half, you're pretty much getting a bunch of nothing burgers. And you've got Beatty, Mauricio, and Vientos. Of course, now, of course, they're hitting triple A pitching, mm-hmm. but they're all three hitting over 300, and they all three have an OPS over a thousand, and they all three have at least three home runs or more. That's a hard pill to swallow when it, it's very, it's very evident that this lineup, this lineup needs something. It, 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 it needs, it needs depth. It needs more power. It needs more versatility. But I going back to to Alvarez. As much as I think in the moment it it it's it, it sucked watching him not be able to come through in that moment and get a hit. I thought it was the right decision because, sure. like you said, he is the future, and the only way that you know he can ever be ready in that situation is if he's in that situation. And so we can't. I mean, this is the this is number one prospect in baseball, and. The Mets got to treat him like it. Like there's there's high expectations for him. You know, this is a guy that should be able to do a lot of great things for them, both behind the plate when he's catching and then at the plate when he's hitting. And you know, I, I do think over time he will be proven to be the right the the, the right everyday catcher. He's not going to catch every day because they're, I don't think they're going to put him in the situation to kind of have happen to him what happened to Tomas Nito, where Scherzer almost took his head off the other night. Like they're going to let him grow and get acclimated, but. You know, in the moment, I thought it was the right decision, even though we lost the game, to to let him see what he had. Because could you imagine that he came through mm-hmm. and let's say he either whether he hits a you know, a two run seagull or heaven forbid he, he you know he he does hit a three run home run to to, to walk the the game off for the Mets. What that would have done for his confidence oh, level? A, he's a hero. He becomes a yeah. hero then. You know, and I mean, the number that he wears, number four, that Wilmer Flores wore four, Patrick mm-hmm. Mazika wore four. That's a hero's number for this Mets organization. So, Dykstra? Yeah. 
<laughs> he's, he's a lot of people's heroes. Um, he had a pretty, he had a pretty big home run in Met history in 1986 that uh, that won a playoff game against the Astros. So, it, and, and a couple also against the the Red Sox in the World Series. So, the, trust me that 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 one is a hero to Mets of an older vintage as well. Mm-hmm. Let's let's look at today. Rusty because... Staub won four two award four two in his first uh, tour of duty with the Mets too. So again, that 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 number means a lot in Mets lore. Yeah, this it does. Why, this is why you have me here, by the way. Exactly. Let's let's look at today because the Mets come back. They they take game three. They win five two. So they take two of three before they do go out west. And like you said, I do think, especially with that A series, there is a chance for them to kind of pad some wins and maybe just start playing much more consistent baseball. Tyler McGill improved to now seven and zero in, in in eight starts, five innings. Two runs, uh, uh, two two run ball. He did three. He had three strikeouts, two three walks. Pete Alonso, as I mentioned earlier, hit his uh, MLB leading six home run. Lindor also had a solo shot. Then you got contributions from Brandon Nimmo, Tommy Pham to to drive in some other runs. When when you saw this team, you know, come back, you know, they're playing on but less than. Less than twelve hours of sleep, if if not just a little bit over. They know that they got a a West Coast flight coming up. When you look at today's win, and let's focus on Tyler McGill, who's kind of been the steadying force uh, for this Mets pitching staff the last two or three years in the opening month of the season. Do you look at today as as the type of win that that can maybe be a springboard for them to to maybe just start stringing together? You know whether it, whether it's it's consistent hitting at the plate, whether it's consistent pitching, because and I know it's it's two weeks and this is a long season. This team has felt very up and down to kind of start the year when you got the payroll that we have and you got the expectations that we have. You know it it, it doesn't sit well with Met fans. Do you look at today as a chance for them to say look back to back home series wins to start the year, where we could kind of maybe start building to having a really good first month or so of the year. Well, I think th- this is what it comes down to is that you needed a good taste in your mouth going on off- out on the road because I think the A series is incredibly winnable. I think the Dodgers series is going to be very, very difficult. And I think the Giants are a lot better than I think we've thought they've been in, in recent memory. So uh, it is going to be a scenario for the Mets where you look at these next three series and that is that they you need to get every opportunity to get a series win in your rearview mirror. I think the real problem with why this game was so important today to win was the fashion that they got swept by the Brewers. And and I think that's the part of this that made today's game, and again, no game on the 12th of April is going to have gargantuan importance. It's it's a 162-game season, but I just think for the here and now, where the Mets are going up against this first West Coast road trip, and again, the part of the way that the schedule works now is that you're going to have more of these now because of the fact that you are going to play every team in baseball. Uh, so you are going to have more West Coast road trips. That's part of the reason why, Robbie, this is a disadvantage for a team on the East Coast because you're going to have to take multiple West Coast road trips and it's always much more difficult. They even heard uh, Howie and... Uh, 
and uh, Keith Rad talking about this on the radio today is that it's always much more difficult to go west. Our state ox was it was Gary and Keith were talking about this. It's always more difficult to go west than it is to go from west to east because mm-hmm. your body clock just isn't used to being you know on the field at ten o'clock at night to start a game against the Dodgers. Now, thankfully for the Mets, they don't start against the Dodgers. They start against the A's, and the A's are a team that I think we all kind of agree with them is that uh, this might be a bit of a rebuilding year for them. Uh, I know that they might still have a chance to possibly contend in the postseason, but I don't think we put the athletics in the same conversation as we do the Dodgers or the Giants. So uh, as a result, you needed this series over the Padres because the, I don't want to say to make up for what happened against the Brewers, but they were not competitive in those first yeah. two games against Milwaukee. And in the third game, uh, it looked like they had ha- kind of found their sea legs a little bit in the middle portion of that contest, yet they still couldn't get anybody out. And I think that's the part of it that you looked at. And I think, again, this is why I think David Peterson being part of this rotation almost might be a bit of a weak link because I think they're asking him to do too much behind Scherzer. And again, I, I understand why they slotted him there because they kind of had to you know do something on the fly, but the fact that you have uh, Peterson coming after Scherzer means that you're probably going to be in this scenario with McGill taking the mound on a getaway day, especially if you line your pitching up the way that you want it, and having him on the mound to try and make up for the mess that Peterson made, or that uh, yeah, that, that David Peterson made. So from that aspect, I look at the Mets saying that they needed a, a good feeling going into this series against the A's. I'm not saying you got to sweep the A's, but I think two out of three against the A's would do very, very well because I think it's going to be hard to assume that you're going to win the series against the Dodgers. I remember the last time we were out there was when I was up in New York and, and watching some of those games uh, last year. That was as white-knuckle baseball the series in Los Angeles that those is wide nickel baseball as the Mets played all season in that series that took place at some point, I believe it was in the early part of June. So because of that, I feel like the Mets are looking at this from the standpoint of this is our opportunity to make a statement. Uh, and not only that, they're doing it without their top pitchers. We mentioned without Verlander, he might be back before the national series uh, beginning uh, at the 25th of April. But I think this is a very, very key stretch of the schedule for the Mets to make sure that not necessarily treading water, but I think hold serve is probably the better way to talk about it. You maybe get a split against the Giants, a series win over the Athletics, and you maybe try to nick one against the Dodgers. So you come back home and at least are somewhat whole uh, going into that series against the Nationals. If you go 500 on this 10-game road trip, I feel like it's a definite win for the Mets uh, going forward. If you go 6-4, and four, that's great. I think anything less than 5-5 five and five or 4-6 and six is a massive disappointment right now. So this the, this West Coast trip does follow the first homestand for the Mets, where they did go four and two, taking two or three against Miami as they continue to dominate NL East division opponents, and then two or three against the Padres. And one of the big things about this team returning to play at City Field was there was a new scoreboard in in in, in City or in center field, and then a a, a new scoreboard. In right field, Willie, you grew up watching the Mets play at the famous Shea Stadium, and of course, you've seen and, and been to many a Met games at 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 at, at City Field. When you look at the the new improvements that 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 were visible, of course, you got I think it's the K Club that's now in right field mm-hmm. and stuff like that. I know Anthony was saying he felt like the new scoreboard in center field was a bit too much. Do Why? you like? I I, I don't know because like, here's my thing. What, I think what? it. <laughs> What's wrong with the scoreboard? Yeah, I don't know. Like, here's we got an owner that has money, 
and he's going to spend money and he wants his team to be flashy. And I, I think it was just another sign of of him telling the Met fan base that, look, I've got a product that I want to show off. We've got a good baseball team. We're going to be good. You know, I, I, he was talking about in the spring, they're going to have great graphics and stuff like that. I like what it's done to the ballpark. You as a guy that's been there over the years, do you like the changes that you've seen to City Field uh, so far in 2023? I absolutely do, and I think it's fantastic uh, what they've done. I've always kind of felt that the scoreboard I almost before felt a little, I don't want to say small, but it just it felt like it was an afterthought. It wasn't ever something like, you know, you look at and say it was an imposing uh, type of thing. You have to understand, the, the scoreboard that I'm used to, like, I, I've been out to Kansas City, and they have an incredible, incredible diamond vision scoreboard out in center field that is massive and i think at the time that they built that it was the largest in the league at the time that they did the uh, the renovation of uh, of kaufman stadium out there i'm also used to having you know the diamond vision that the mets had you know at shea stadium that i'm not going to say that that one was bigger than what was at city field but it seemed to be about the same size as the diamond vision at, at shea stadium and i'm used to that big huge scoreboard out in right field inside the old ballpark and and I think you missed a heck of a lot of that type of uh experience when you looked at at City Field so I I think that scoreboard again I've seen uh more of the kind of fan pictures of it I, my sister was at the game on Tuesday night and she showed a picture to me and and again it it pops and I think that's something you wanted I love what they did with the uh, the championship banners down the right field line where they basically made it uh a scenario where, where they uh they focused on the two world champions Championships and the three pennants that they won uh, outside of those two world world championships, and then kind of put the NL East championships and the NL Wild Card championships kind of all in their own banner, so that we're not you know constantly putting a banner up there being like, oh we 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 made the wild card and then did nothing else with it, or oh we you know <laughs> we got to the we got to the the play in and uh, didn't do anything else with it. So I think I think singularly recognizing the two world championships, the three pennants outside of those championship seasons, and uh, and maybe keeping the, the NL East pennants and the NL wildcard pennants uh, somewhat separate, uh, I think was pretty, pretty cool as well. And and the speakeasy thing, like that'd be the kind of thing where like if I lived in New York, I'd want to do that, you know, on a semi, I don't want to say semi-regular basis, but like do that outside of going to a game in, in uh, the regular normal fashion. But again, I don't get up there often enough to 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 do that i'd you know i'd rather just go sit in a seat and have a nathan's hot dog and a carvel cone and whatnot or mr softy cone now because they don't have carvel anymore but you know that that uh that is more of the experience for me as opposed to uh going to the uh going to the speakeasy or uh standing on the shake shack line for four innings one of the things that is new to major league baseball we see this in other professional sports leagues you see it in the mls uh, which you cover uh, very exclusively. You see it now in the NBA is uh, teams now can put sponsors on their jerseys. And the Mets did a, a really cool thing in, in putting the New York Presbyterian Hospital, that is their their, their jersey sponsor that's on the, the sleeve opposite the one where the Mets patch is. But uh, first off, it was, as Steve Cohen said, it was Philly colors. And yeah. then my, my biggest takeaway, like the colors, the color scheme is, is obviously a problem. My thing is that it's just like it's it's really really big, yeah. And it's so like I I hope like first hey Steve let's 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 get the thing in, in Met colors, 
but also can we make it smaller and make it a lot more encompassing? Like I know the Padres, theirs is Motorola and it looks really good. The Marlins have ADT. Now I think their problem is same with the Mets where, you know, it, logo. It, 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 it just looks bad. So when, when you look at the Jersey patch and you're a guy that grew up, you know, watching baseball throughout the years. And, you know, well, I remember when they went to the Nike uniform and them having the, the the what I guess the Nike check on the front of the jersey. A lot of people had a lot of complaints about it and stuff like that. When you see the jersey patch on the Mets classic home whites uh, uniforms, of course we'll see it now on the road. What what do you think of as a lifelong Met fan who's seen this jersey change over the last 30, 40 years or so? So here's the thing I don't like about it. Uh, I don't like that they were incredibly intentional with putting the patch on the sleeve where it gains the most visibility. And that was something, I think it was either Gary or Howie who said this during a game where basically the, the way the patch works is that they're going to have the patch on the sleeve that is most seen. Like, for example, if you're a left-handed hitter, uh, the sleeve, the patch is going to be on the right sleeve because that's the sleeve that gets the most attention on the center field camera. Or if you're a pitcher, it's going to be on the left sleeve if you're a right-handed pitcher, et cetera, and so on. And so the thing that I don't like about that is that it's on an inconsistent sleeve, and so that takes the Met logo, which traditionally has been on the left sleeve, and puts it for some of the players on the right sleeve, which I, I think is just kind of weird. I've, I've, I'm used to having that right sleeve either open or reserved for like whatever commemorative patch you're going to put over there, whether it was honoring a player who died or, or honoring you know a world championship or an anniversary or a, a or a retired number or something like that, like. I, it just it does something to the cleanliness of the uniform for me, and I, I just feel like uh, now each of these uniforms seems somewhat different. I remember hearing also, uh, forget who was who said it, but that because Francisco Lindor is a switch hitter, he's got to have two different uniforms, and that you know he might have to change uniforms if say a left-handed pitcher comes out of the bullpen and he has to turn around about right-handed, he might have to go change his uniform because the patch is on the wrong side of the sleeve. It's like like that that to me. Uh, do we really need to be doing that? Like that's that's very minutia laden for me, and, and he and I am somebody who is like you know Willie minutia. You know that's that that's that's a little too much for me. But you know other than that, I, I like that it's for you know even though it is an ad, it is for a good co cause like New York Presbyterian. But uh, Met colors a little smaller and put it on the same sleeve, please. The the only reason why I'm not going to complain if Francisco Lindor has to change his jersey mid game. Is that it will, it will involuntarily slow the game down, which brings us to <laughs> maybe the most fun we're gonna have today talking on this edition of the pod. Um, you and I got into a very passionate disagreement with another baseball fan that works at at the station that that you and I work at here in Charlotte about the pitch clock because he raves about it. He thinks it's been good for the game and this, that, and the other. You and I think completely opposite. And there aren't many things that you and I lockstep agree on. But, I, I, you know, look, I, I've watched a lot of baseball over the first two weeks of the year. I bought the full MLB package, so I get to see every baseball game that is out of my market uh, at at my choosing, which has been which which, which a in lot of Charlotte, fun. by the way, is like only twenty five out of the thirty <laughs> teams because of all the teams that are in our market that we allegedly have uh, to be able to view view here. 
Yeah, no, it'll it'll be so much easier when we have a AL Charlotte team here as opposed to five NL and AL teams that, that we kind of call home. Oh, I'm sure they'll still do something to do to, to screw the listener, screw the viewer. <laughs> when, when when I look at the pitch clock, I, I think here's my thing. And I've kind of gone on, and I have it written down on our show sheet that it continues to ruin baseball. And while that that might be a stretch, my issue, I guess, isn't the clock itself. My issue is that you took a sport that for 150 years had no clock. And I was raised up on the belief that part of the beauty of Major League Baseball was that you had as long as it took to, to either you know win a game, come back and win a game, no matter what it was. Like You just had unlimited amounts of time. So we took a sport that had no clock whatsoever and have now instituted a clock, whether you have runners on base, whether you have runners that aren't on base, that is shorter than men and women's college basketball, college football, the NFL, and the NBA. And I don't get how people that are diehard baseball fans, casual baseball fans, or new baseball fans, how they can't identify that as a problem. Had we started at, you know, with like 30 seconds with nobody on the on base and then 40 seconds with a runner on, I probably wouldn't be sitting here complaining. But 15 seconds and 20 seconds, it's not long enough to go through everything you've got to go through for the pitcher to get ready to make his pitch and for the hitter to get ready to hit whatever pitch is coming his way. And, and I know people are talking about, well, it's a great pace of play. To me, it just felt it, everything just feels sped up to a point to where it almost comes across as unwatchable, which is the complete inverse of what Rod Manfred wanted to do when him and Major League Baseball instituted the pitch clock to begin with. So here's the biggest problem with all of this, is that there were rules on the books. They were very much more like guidelines than they were rules, to borrow the parlance of the phrase from uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. But there were rules in place that, basically dictated how long the batter needed or, or how long the batter took to get themselves to home plate. And those things became more forcefully enforced over the course of the last couple of years. And there also were things involving, you know, hey, you couldn't step out of the box unless you fouled the pitch off, things of that nature. And, and it's those things that kind of got somewhat carried away as opposed to the pitcher. And, and the fact that this has all been been put on the pitcher and has sped him up has, I think, unfortunately, turned the game into a hyperspeed game where every game I look at now looks like it's on heroin. And, and I just it, it's a different game. It feels like a podcast where you put it uh, as a recording at two times the speed, like there is a rhythm to baseball. There's a dance in baseball. It's a waltz, and it's it's not meant to be a Charleston. It's not meant to be you know hyper depth techno punk. It's baseball, and that's the part of it that I feel like has been robbed from the baseball fan. And this is all done under the guise of, oh, it's going to bring people back to baseball. It's going to put so many more eyes on baseball. People are going to come back to baseball after being gone for years because games are 21 minutes faster than they were last year, a year ago. No, 
People who left baseball didn't leave baseball because the games are long, because we've got three and a half to four hour college football games, and they're not complaining about the viewership of those right now. So the reason why people left baseball are not because of the dead time, not because of the long games, because Rob Manfred, as a commissioner and a stooge, has completely bungled the marketing of his game. Blackout rules. You talked about this earlier. At least I mentioned it earlier when I interjected. Blackout rules in terms of places that either don't have a baseball team or have a market that is saturated with more than one team have completely blocked viewers in those markets from watching the game unless they subscribe to a cable or satellite provider, which is happening less and less by the thousands every damn day. And because of these archaic rules has closed off people from the game. And also the fact that you have not been able, you've made this sport so regionally based that you are not able to market this sport to anybody who cares about anybody other than the team that's in their market or that they grew up rooting for. I don't watch baseball outside of the Mets anymore because I don't have a a real feel of who I really care about watching anymore. Like I'll watch Otani if he's on national TV. But and maybe I'll watch what's on Sunday Night Baseball if it's two teams I, I you know genuinely or or somewhat care about. But outside of that, I watch the Mets and then I go to bed. I I don't watch baseball the way that people watch the NFL or people watch the NBA or people watch whatever they watch on a college football Saturday. Like for whatever reason, and I don't I don't necessarily know the one hundred percent sixty four thousand dollar answer to the question, but. Rob Manfred is at the forefront of making sure that this thing has become somewhat, I would say, isolated. And I'll also say this, you know, for some people who are saying it's just the passage of time, I do feel like the expansion of interleague play also killed a lot of the oh, the, the, the thing in, in terms of this as well. Because here's the biggest, biggest issue with everybody playing everybody now is that you've killed divisional baseball. Everybody's the same right now. And so the fact that you only have two series apiece against your divisional opponents, it makes those games completely obscure. It, like, 19 games against the Braves is what we always knew and loved. And you always knew that those 19 games were going to be how the division was won or lost. And now it's like, it's another series now. And people, will, the other people on the other side will say, oh, well, that just makes them that much more important because there's lots of them. No, 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 no. It makes them completely infinitesimally less important because a series against the Braves means as much as a series against the Cubs because you play them almost the exact same amount of time. So I'm sorry. I understand that people like it because the games are quicker and you can get on with your evening. If I'm going to a baseball game and it's two hours and 21 minutes and not three hours, I feel like I'm getting gypped and screwed as a consumer. So in my opinion, I look at this and I say, people who think that baseball needed a clock on that and that it's going to bring people back to baseball, I don't care what the ratings look like after week one. I think that's a complete obscure uh, cherry-picking type thing because of the curiosity of it. I think they are going to flatten, and I think, honestly... The game is worse for it. Sorry no, if that no. was too long of a discourse. Oh no, because because I I'm right there in lockstep. It's it's amazing how some of the things they got right. I would argue that the shift caused people to leave baseball more so than a three hour and three minute time. The, and the now shift, the shift the, is gone. That's the thing. Like like 
every other thing they did. Like, I'm even okay with the the disengagement rule. Like, like that actually is cool. I like that part. I think if you did everything that they did this offseason, the bigger bases, the disengagement rule, the banning of the shift, I think those would have had an equal impact on making the game more watchable and fun before you even put anything involving a clock involving in baseball. I think so, I think you could have had the exact same type of infusion of of goodness. The the fact that you put the clock in there while you may be may, may you may be making the game shorter, it, it's not made them I think better in terms of my opinion. So I I guess my question I'll ask before we get out of here is you know because like I said if if the clock was thirty seconds with nobody on base and then forty seconds, I probably wouldn't have as big an issue as opposed to what's fifteen and twenty. Are you kind of in lockstep in that to where, like, if they make amendments to the clock, where they just the clock is still there, but it's kind of what you see in other sports where it's thirty to forty seconds? Like, like, would you be okay with that? Or because, like, I'm not gonna if if they got rid of the clock altogether, I would not complain. I mean, I actively root for long baseball games now. Sure, I want games to take over three Mets, hours. Mets Mets played their game in two fifty one today. I thought it was awesome. Yeah, it, 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 exactly. So, like, if, if the clock was just adjusted to thirty and forty seconds, that's kind of where I, I've kind of found my middle ground. Like, would you like would you be more okay with that with the clock, or because of you know the, the way you grew up, the way that you you the way that you consume baseball, you want the clock gone altogether? Well, here's the thing. Like, if they did that, then it would have felt less invasive. I think they wanted to be invasive. I think they wanted to send a message. They wanted to send a message being like, we are cracking down on long baseball games because long baseball is the reason why this country is where it is. And then we need to get ourselves back to two hours and 12-minute baseball games because we're not going to cut any commercials now. We have to make sure that everybody gets their ad time in now. So I mean, that, that, that's the whole thing is that they wanted to be invasive. They wanted it to be disruptive. I think if they did it for 30, minute, 30 seconds to 40 seconds, uh, then it would not have had this curve fluffle. But I also think it's not realistic. They want they, they got what they wanted. They wanted the games cut by 30 minutes. So they got what they wanted. Bravo, MLB. Feel great. Feel like you accomplished something that you got baseball to be half an hour shorter. Guess what? I don't think it's going to end up in more eyeballs. I don't think it's going to end up in better baseball games. I think you're going to get just as many two-hour and two-minute schnoozers when it comes to Sandy Alcantara throwing a complete game on a getaway day with everybody taking a swing at every contact pitch and not having the kind of actual exciting baseball. A, a three-hour baseball game is not the scourge on humanity that everybody seemed to have. People who watch baseball religiously didn't ask for this. I don't think the people who don't watch baseball asked for it either. What they asked for is a reason to care and a reason for urgency. What you really needed to do instead of cutting down the baseball games themselves is cut down the number of games you play. This baseball season goes way too damn long. It should be over by Labor Day and baseball should be done before Halloween instead of going into November, which is the way that they have it now. Yeah, nope, and that's something that I think maybe we'll talk about in another edition because I'm right there with you. I love baseball. I'm a 162 guy. I actively now refer to it as probably my favorite pro sport to watch on a night-in, night-out basis. But I, I could also sit here and agree that if the season, if baseball didn't compete with the NFL in the college football year, mm -hmm. I do feel like a, a lot more people would care and be invested. And another another way to, to really just show and, uh, and exemplify why Rod Manfred sucks, you're coming off a year where you had – 
Aaron Judge, who plays for your most prominent franchise in the Yankees, set the AL home run record, and you didn't even market that right, let alone what you got in Shohei Otani, Mike Trout. You got Rodriguez with the with the Mariners, Ramirez with the Indians. Like, There's a lot of great young talent that does exist in Major League Baseball. But unless you follow it day in, day out, the like you said, you've got diehards that aren't, aren't tuning in to watch them, let alone the casual fans. The issue in baseball was never the length of game. The issue in the sport is marketing the game. And when you're on the same parallels of Gary Bettman in the NHL, that's how you know that you suck at your job. And that's what Mon and, and, and that's where Rob Manfred is right now with him running major league major league baseball. And the funny thing is, is that when the time comes where he's no longer the commissioner, and I think, you know, that's going to happen sooner than later. The next guy will do kind of what you see uh, when, when when you see a changeover with our president from the Republicans to the Democrats. The next guy is going to come in and pretty much probably undo everything that he has done because baseball people will tell you he's made the game worse. He he, he He's made the way to consume the game worse. And he, he hasn't been what baseball needed upon being named the commissioner of our nation's pastime. So um, with that. I think that's a great dismount to get out of this edition of the podcast. Willie, I had a lot of fun. Uh, hopefully we could, we could do this again sometime soon, of course, unless you find yourself back on the IL. You had to take a shot on the way out, didn't you? <laughs> you, catch, you, you? You catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. Uh, well, any. Hopefully, hopefully we get ourselves a good road trip. Hopefully we get. Yep, ourselves ho- a good road trip. yep. Hopefully the Mets do come back, as you said, at least five hundred or better. No matter what happens, though, we will be here on the Flushing's Finest podcast, talking all things about what the Mets are doing on and off the field. In the meantime, we do encourage you guys to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. You can find us on every major podcasting platform. Just simply search the Flushing's Finest podcast, and we will pop up. We're there. You can do all those things I just mentioned, rate, review, and subscribe. But with that, guys, this is going to wrap up this edition of the show. do want to thank Willie once again for hosting with me. We want to thank you guys for listening. And as always, let's, let's go, go Mets! Mets.